The church is not a hierarchy, it's not a building, it's not an organization that you join. It's a family where you belong. It's a home where you are loved. And it's a hospital where you receive healing. The church is not a man-made institution or idea. It's a God idea. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Whose church is it? It's his church. I will build my church, said Jesus. Peter declares that the church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then he continues by saying, Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. The church is not where we go. It is who we are. We don't go to church. We are church. And We Are Church is the new series of Sunday morning teaching that we are going to be um, looking at together over the next couple of months. And uh, this is going to be our focus. And the series will be part discovery and part declaration. What do I mean by that? Discovery in the sense that we are going to discover what the New Testament says about the church. And it's also going to be a declaration of what kind of church we believe that we are being called at Tamworth Elin to be. And today is the, the first in our series. And we're going to commence by declaring that we are <clears throat> a Jesus-centered church. The writer to Hebrews encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. And at Tamothelian Church, we unashamedly are a family who are centered on Jesus. Jesus is everything to us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our guide. He is our wisdom. He is the one that we live for and worship and imitate and honor and exalt and tell others about. He is the one who gives our lives purpose and direction and meaning. Some years ago, we used to sing a song. <clears throat> All I once held dear built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. You see, we are not some social club for the religiously inclined that has some vague ideas about Jesus. But Jesus is at the center of our lives. He is at the center of this church. He is pivotal. He is foundational. And our identity as people, as individuals, and corporately as a church is found in him. Being a Christian, we believe, is not just a matter of saying a prayer or making a decision, or making some public response in an emotion-charged meeting, and then sitting back in comfort waiting for heaven. But we believe that being a Christian is being on a journey with Jesus every day, and in every way, in every circumstance. 
<coughs> it is not some allegiance to a code of conduct or a particular tradition. It is a call to a relationship with Jesus. The Apostle Paul speaks of his own experience when he wrote those words in Philippians chapter 1, 21. For me to live is Christ. And these words, I believe, are the heartbeat of our church. Doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're not. Doesn't mean that we always get it right. We don't. But our heart's desire is that. For me to live is Christ. For us to live is Christ. And every day when I walk from home to my office, which is about a four or five minute walk, I actually declare on that walk, it's sort of my part of my daily time with God. It's, it's, it's a good time. And I declare the words of Paul as a, a daily prayer of commitment. His words from Galatians 2 verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And you know, I think that Paul's words there are about as Jesus-centered as you could ever get. And as I pray through those words, uh, I am choosing each and every day to live my life for Jesus the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I tell you, just a thought, why don't you take to memory that particular verse? It may take you a, sort of, a couple of days to get it in your head and start using it as part of your devotion. A daily prayer of commitment to Jesus. You see, in society there remains a fascination with the person of Jesus, even amongst those people who are turned off by formal religion. Many people are willing to speak of their attraction and enthrallment with Jesus. For example, Billy Connery, Connery, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man. Atheist author and historian H.G. Wells admitted, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. I think probably most of us here today would agree on that, that we also believe that Jesus is the central figure of all history. But we can't obviously stop where H.G. Wells and uh, Billy Connolly stop, because even though we believe that Jesus was an amazing man, a wonderful man, the center of history, he was far more than that. He was far more than a man. And he was the Son of God. He was God who came to us in human form. And in an age when people are turned off the church, which they often view with suspicion, the more I believe that we can display the love and the character of Jesus, the more attractive we will become to the average person. That's really important. You know, to be a Jesus-centered church, we need to embrace what was important to Jesus. We need to obey his teaching. And we need to live our lives for his values and for his mission in this world. So what was it that attracted people to Jesus? Well, first of all, he spoke their language. And so should we. 
And I'm not only speaking in the sense that Jesus spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the people of the day, and he chose not to communicate in Greek or Hebrew, which the scholars would have uh, used. But he spoke in a way which was accessible to ordinary people. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day just talked in circles. And sometimes they aired their fanciful ideas of how to interpret the Hebrew Scriptures, which is our Old Testament. And every rabbi seemed to have a particular view and argued their ideas ad infinitum with anyone who was going to listen to them. But Jesus, he was so different. He made the Scriptures relevant. He related truth to everyday life. And people were just spellbound by his teaching. In Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus was set apart. He was different, very different. People heard him. And a church that is Jesus-centered will not complicate the teaching of the Bible. I don't know about you, but I think that the Bible is complicated enough. And a Jesus-centered church will seek to make the scriptures relevant and accessible for those who are seeking God. And it's our heartfelt desire here in Neelim that we will watch our language. I don't mean in the sense of, you know, using bad language, but in the sense of perhaps using religious cliches and theological language and expressions which very often are hard for people who are seeking God to understand. And that's, you know, something that we've got quite a passion about. A Jesus-centered church also uses Jesus to unlock the Bible. Now, you may be thinking about that. What do you mean, Steve? Uses Jesus to unlock the Bible. Well, I'm sure you've noticed how um, the Bible is, is put together. It's, it's, it's a very complicated anthology of all different kinds of writings written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages, written on three continents. And you've got it by 40 different human authors writing history and prophecy and poetry and wisdom literature and biographies and letters and books of the law, uh, which makes up the 66 books of the Bible. But many people, where do, you, where do you start with all of that? Where do you start? How do you start? What holds this amazing anthology of books, 66 books in all, of all kinds of different genre? What holds it together? Well, maybe we should ask, who holds it together? Because Jesus is the key that unlocks the Bible. <clears throat> and if you are wanting to understand the message of the Bible, here's my advice. Please don't start with Genesis or Jeremiah or Jonah or Job. <laughs> I couldn't think of any more J's. Or John, even. No, perhaps John. Different. Start with Jesus. And that's why John is different. Start with Jesus. And then allow what Jesus taught and how Jesus acted and reacted to inform everything else that we read in the scriptures. You see, I'm a born optimist. I was very optimistic yesterday afternoon. <laughs> That's the problem with being a born optimist. And Julie has often said to me, and sometimes with great frustration, you are always looking through rose-tinted glasses or rose-tinted spectacles meaning that I can see the potential for something good happening in almost every situation. But when it comes to reading, reading and understanding the Bible, we all need to look through 
Jesus tinted spectacles. Some people, some Christians I, I, I know, read the Bible as a bit of a flat book. And it doesn't matter if they're reading the words of Moses or David or Abraham. They see them as important as what Jesus had to say. And I'm saying, surely that can't be right. These were godly men. Of course they were. They were used amazingly by, by, by God, and they were. And they were inspired by God, yes, again. But they were only men who lived with a partial understanding. Even the Apostle Paul says this. Let me quote his words to you in um, 1 Corinthians 30, in that great chapter on love. He says, now we see but a poor reflection. He's speaking about now in this present life, in this world. We see a poor reflection as a mirror. But then, when's he talking about? When he sees Christ face to face. Then we shall see face to face. Now, he says, including himself, who had written 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, he says, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So I would say that the Jesus-centered church understands the Bible and the character of God, first and foremost, through Jesus. <coughs> what else was it that attracted people to Jesus? Well, he valued people that society rejected. Now, I would say to you, read the Gospels, and I would say it's impossible to read the Gospels and read about Jesus and not notice that Jesus had a real willingness and a desire to hang out with those uh, who were the outcasts and the despised and the rejected and the diseased and the crooked and the prostitute and people who were generally broken. And it just seemed that he loved to be around people who lived on the margins of society. And I can imagine that maybe for the first time in their lives, many of them would have felt loved and accepted when Jesus came to them. Matthew tells us of an occasion when he invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and offer sacrifices, uh, not offer sacrifices. For I have not come to call those who think that they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. You see, for us to be a Jesus-centered church, it means that we should be like Jesus that we should value those who are rejected in society, those who are vulnerable, those on the margins, those who are often excluded and exploited, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, the homeless, the refugee. I am so thrilled that we are able, along with others, to be able to host the winter night shelter on our premises. And let me just sort of pass on my thanks. Dan mentioned it earlier. Thank you for all those who have been involved in whatever way. Thank you to Tina, who's done a great job here in, in leading the, uh, the Winter Night Shelter. Thank you for providing a safe place for those who are sleeping rough. Thank you to all those who are serving in Food Bank and other ministries, the coffee shop and prime time, where you're reaching out to the vulnerable and the socially isolated. You see, Jesus valued people that society rejected. And to be a Jesus-centered church, we need to value those same people.
I don't know about you, you might have seen it in the news this week, you might have read it on a newspaper, but I was particularly saddened, dismayed actually, to read that the government has reneged on its commitment to provide safe havens for, child, for lone child refugees. I don't know if you've read that this week. Last year our government initially promised uh, entry into the UK uh, for 3,000 unaccompanied children, which in itself, 3,000 might sound a lot, it's a tiny, tiny number. But now the, the government is stopping, not at the 3,000 that they promised, but at 350. And many of these children were going to be targets for exploitation and sex traffickers. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you know, these kids are kids who are made in the image of God like you and me. They're loved by Him. They need open hearts and open arms, not a closed door. And I believe that the Jesus-centered church will stand up and be a voice for the voiceless in this world. And if you feel as strongly as I do about what I'm saying this morning, then I would encourage you, contact your MP, write an email, write a letter, make an appointment with them, and tell them what you think is appropriate in all of this. And when you're at it, maybe you'd also like to tell your MP that Britain should stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia who are bombing Yemeni schools and hospitals and funeral halls, claiming many lives. I think it's absolutely appalling that we are servicing such indiscriminate atrocities in the name of commerce. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Let me tell you what you're thinking. Steve, what are you dealing with all this politics for on a Sunday morning? It's not politics, it's Bible. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. So you may think it's politics. Well, the whole world is ours. We're not Christians. We don't believe in some kind of segregation. You know, on a Sunday morning, you live your little spiritual life and then you revert to the rest of your life, the secular life, the rest of the week. No! doesn't work that way. If you're a Christian, everything is spiritual. Everything. The Monday morning as much as a Sunday morning. And I just want to encourage you. If you are people of great conviction, which I know most of you are, in the way that you, you, you approach your lives, then, and you are convicted about these things, don't just sit and mourn. Do something about it. Pray about it. Get others to pray about it. Okay? So I know that sounds a little bit political, but it's not. It really isn't. And I have no intention to be political in, in, in that particular sense. Now I'm going to show you a video. It's a video that I saw this week. It's a video of um, an American pastor by the name of Jim uh, Kimbala. And he was talking about a man named David. And for those who are listening to this on podcast, You'll need to click the hyperlink on the life group notes and then come back to my talk. To be a Jesus-centered church, we need to touch the lives of people like David. As Pastor Jim did and as Jesus did. And he reached out to those in the margins of society. Those who were despised and rejected by society. And Jesus revealed the love of God. 
to those who were regarded as unclean, the prostitute, the leper, the foreigner, the adulterer, and so must we be. And we are being called to be Jesus to those that we meet. You see, I've met many people over the years, and I've spoken to many people. Many people feel that they're just too sinful for God to ever be interested in them. And I've had many conversations with people who feel that they're just so unworthy, and they have such a low view of themselves, and they think that they could never, ever be accepted or acceptable to God. And many people believe that God is angry with them. And Jesus, as we know, turned all of that on its head when he revealed to them that he had not come to <coughs> condemn the world, but to be its savior. And Jesus told such stories as the shepherd who had uh, sheep and lost one of the sheep, and he searched and searched and searched until he found that sheep. And then there was great rejoicing. And then he told the crowd that he there would be even more rejoicing in heaven over someone who is coming back to God. Even the angels would be having a party. And it wasn't only that story. There was the story of the lost coin and the lost son, which made similar points. And the harshest words of Jesus that he ever uttered were not against ordinary sinful people who had just messed up their lives, but they were normally targeted for the religious leaders who often made it life impossible for ordinary people who had placed, and they placed mountainous rules and regulations before them, which acted as a barrier to God. You see, as a Jesus-centered church, we are called to declare and emphasize the love of God to all. That God is not only a God who is loving, but he is a God who is love. It defines his character, it defines his person. The great verse in Matthew chapter 9, which says that when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you know what my prayer is for myself and for us is, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us a compassion for a needy world. Give us a love for the unlovely that we might be you to them. There's an old chorus we used to sing a long time ago. Soften my heart, Lord, soften my heart. From all indifference, set me apart to feel your compassion, to weep with your tears. Come soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart. Let's pray together.